0: Your Bibles tonight to Matthew chapter 26. Matthew 26. As I said this morning, probably at the 8.30 service more clearly than 11 o'clock service, I've started a new message series from now until Easter entitled 24 Hours. I want us as a congregation to like take a, a good, long, slow look at the very last day in Jesus' life. I, I truly believe you can learn a lot about a person by watching that person die. And you can learn an awful lot by the way Jesus died. Paul said, I came to you knowing nothing except Jesus and him crucified. If we can focus on and learn from the death of Jesus, I think our souls will be well fed and well nurtured. Matthew chapter 26 is where we'll pick up tonight. What would you say is the, in all of creation, in all of history, the greatest display of God's power? The resurrection. Yeah, resurrection. There's no argument there. The resurrection of Jesus is the triumph of God and the greatest display of God's power. Yeah. Well, what else would you say? Yeah, Mike. Yeah, absolutely. the the tremendous universe, uh, the, the the size of which we can't even begin to absorb, uh, but but it is all God's handiwork. Yeah, the the universe itself. What else? Great displays of God's power. Yeah. What do you say, Tim? Yeah. Yeah, the great display of God's power when he returns. And the sky rolls up like a scroll. I can't wait for that. I hope I'm alive. Uh, It's so wonderful to see him split the sky. Yeah, what a great display of power. What else? Great displays of God's power. Charlotte. The birth of a child. Absolutely amazing, isn't it? Absolutely amazing. Yeah, the birth of a child. The creation of new life. Yeah. What else? Parting of the Red Sea, walking across on dry ground. Wouldn't that have been something? Big walls of water on both sides. Yeah, parting of the Red Sea, uh, amazing. There was another hand. Yeah, Judy. Yeah, the the power of the storm. Yeah, those enormous clouds boiling and rolling across the the land the other day. Uh, Hailstones the size of softballs, wind, absolutely amazing. Uh, and that is a small display of God's power. Yeah. I've heard someone say that, that the, greatest, the greatest demonstration of God's power is his restraint, his forbearance, to use the, the King James word. What does that mean? The, the restraint of God. How is that a display of great power? The, the restraint of God, God's forbearance. What do those words mean? What is restraint? Yeah, to, to, to hold back. To restrain is, is to hold back. So what do we mean when we say the greatest display of God's strength is his forbearance, his restraint, his, his holding back? Turn in your Bibles. Keep, keep your finger in Matthew. Turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 2, verse 4. I want you to understand what I'm talking about here. Romans chapter 2, verse 4. Romans 2, 4. Don't you see how wonderfully kind, tolerant, and patient, the word there is for, for, forbearant, how wonderfully kind, tolerant, and forbearant God is with you? Does this mean nothing to you? Can't you see that his kindness is intended to turn you from sin? And then... Romans chapter 3, verse 25, just slip over there. Romans 3, 25, God presented Jesus as the sacrifice for sin. People are made right with God when they believe that Jesus sacrificed his life, shedding his blood. This sacrifice shows that God was being fair. God was being patient when he held back. And did not punish those who sinned in times past. For he was looking ahead and including them in what he would do in this present time. God did this to demonstrate his righteousness. For he himself is fair and just and declares sinners to be right in his sight when they believe in Jesus. God holds back his power. God restrains his wrath according to scripture. Have you ever seen somebody absolutely annoyed, somebody bullied, somebody having to hold back, restrain their own temper, restrain their own anger? Have you ever seen someone at the point of absolutely about to explode? Uh, to, to hold in your rage, to hold back your wrath, to contain your anger sometimes, to contain your strength is one of the most difficult things to do. And some of us have never mastered it, let's be honest but but god in his power has this incredible ability to restrain himself our sin it itself is an offense to god it is a fly up his nose constantly and yet god restrains his wrath it's what the scripture teaches it is that restraint of god's power which is perhaps one of the greatest displays of god's power which brings us to matthew chapter 26 Matthew chapter 26. I said this morning that in in these last 24 hours of Jesus' life, you can learn a lot about Jesus by what what he chooses to do. In these last 24 hours, you see, he's going to choose and he's going to do and say the things that are most important. But you could argue that after just a few hours... He's not making choices anymore. You understand? He's taken into custody, and that's what we're about to read. He's taken into custody. He's no longer, it seems, in control. Or or is he? Uh, Let's look at it together. Matthew chapter 26, verse 36. Look for examples of the forbearance, the restraint of Christ. Verse 36 is where we'll start. Then Jesus went with them to the olive grove called Gethsemane and said, sit here while I go over there to pray. He took Peter and Zebedee's two sons, James and John, and he became anguished and distressed. He he told them, my soul is, say the word, crushed. My soul is crushed with grief to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. My soul is crushed with grief to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. He went on a little farther and bowed with his face to the ground, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup of suffering be taken away from me. Yet what? I want your will to be done and not mine. Then he returned to the disciples and found them asleep. He said to Peter, Couldn't you watch with me even one hour? Keep watch and pray so that you will not give in to temptation, for the spirit is willing, but the body, the flesh, is weak. Then Jesus left them a second time and prayed, My father, if this cup cannot be taken away unless I drink it, your will be done. When he returned to them again, he found them sleeping, for they just couldn't keep their eyes open. So he went to pray a third time, saying the same things again. Then he came to the disciples and said, Go ahead and sleep. Have your rest. But look, the time has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Up, let's be going. Look. My betrayer is here. And even as Jesus said this, Judas, one of the twelve disciples, arrived with a crowd of men armed with swords and clubs. They had been sent by the leading priests and elders of the people. The traitor, Judas, had given them a prearranged signal You will know which one to arrest when I greet him with a kiss. So Judas came straight to Jesus. Greetings, Rabbi, he exclaimed and gave him the kiss. Jesus said, my friend, go ahead and do what you have come for. Then the others grabbed Jesus and arrested him. But one of the men with Jesus pulled out his sword and struck the high priest's slave, slashing off his ear. Put away your sword, Jesus told him. Those who use the sword will die by the sword. Don't you realize that I could ask my father for thousands of angels to protect us and he would send them instantly. But if I did, how would the scriptures be fulfilled that describe what must happen now? (coughs) Then Jesus said to the crowd, Am I some dangerous revolutionary that you come with swords and clubs to arrest me? Why didn't you arrest me in the temple? I was there teaching every day. But this is all happening to fulfill the words of the prophets as recorded in the scriptures. And at that point, all the disciples deserted him and fled. Tell me where you see Christ's forbearance, his restraint in in this episode. Yeah, the disciples who are not capable of praying, it seems, one hour without falling asleep. Yeah, he shows incredible restraint and actually tenderness with them. Even though he encourages them to stay awake and pray, eventually he just lets them sleep. It's restraint. It's holding in that power of his. Where else? It's all over this story. His response to Judas Yeah, Judas comes with a kiss. Remember this morning, I I, I pointed out, especially in the 11 o'clock service, that Judas is the betrayer, but instead Jesus removes that label and calls him friend. He calls him friend. And he calls him friend in this moment, in this passage. He says, friend, go ahead and do what you've you've come for. He calls him friend and simply receives that kiss. Yeah, amazing restraint. What else? Where else? Yeah. Verse 39, he went on a little farther and bowed with his face to the ground, saying, My Father, if it is possible, let this cup of suffering be taken away from me. Yet I want your will to be done, not mine. Yeah, absolutely restraint. It it is not my will. Yeah, he chooses this cup of suffering, which he did not have to choose. You understand that? He chooses that. Yeah. What else? Where else? Yeah, absolutely. Don't miss that point. He could have called 10,000 angels. He could have called 10,000 angels. This mob, this crowd of soldiers, this crowd of, 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 of policemen, so to speak, they come in with swords and clubs. What are the swords and clubs for? Yeah, to overtake him, to subdue him. To subdue him. Okay, Remember how we started this conversation about the great power of God, the, the, the universe, the, the parting of the, of the Red Sea, and all of the other examples you could possibly name along with me of, of God's great power. And they brought, what, swords and clubs? Do you understand the, the incredible, pathetic irony of that? They're going to take him into custody. They're going to take control of him, and they brought along some swords and clubs for that. He could have called 10,000 angels. you understand? He could have simply spoke a word, and they would have collapsed. They're right on the ground. It's incredible restraint. Do you understand? He's choosing this. They have no power over him. The only power they have is the power he gives them. And he gives them the power here. It's incredible restraint. Don't miss this part of the story. For the remainder of these 24 hours, Jesus is held. Jesus is imprisoned. Jesus is beaten. Jesus is tortured. Jesus is taken here and there and ultimately nailed to a cross. But you've got to see the restraint of Christ in that. You've got to understand that he chooses this. Nobody takes his life from him. He lays it down. He lays it down. They have no power over him, and the swords and clubs don't give them any advantage. You understand? He lays it down. There's an ancient saying that that every battle is won or lost before it is fought. Every battle is won or lost before it is fought. What does that mean? It's in the preparation. It's in the planning. Yeah. If that's true at all, if every battle is won or lost before it is fought, then then you'd have to say that Gethsemane is the place where the battle at Calvary is won. And I would make that argument. The the battle that is going to be fought at Calvary is actually won before it is fought. And I think something is won right here at, at Gethsemane. Something happens in the heart of Jesus. Something is going on here. Understand, these are Jesus' last hours, and the time he spends at Gethsemane is chosen, and it's important. So what happens here? How is the battle at Calvary somehow being prepared for, and even I would say won, right here at Gethsemane? What's happening Jesus is submitting to the plan. As we said, no one takes his life away from him. He lays it down. And this is that moment with the Father. Understand, with the Father, when Jesus submits. Now Jesus is already submitted, but it's at this moment, in these moments before he's taken, it's in these moments when he says, not my will, not my will, but yours be done. If at all possible, let this cup of suffering pass from me but not what I want, what you want. Yeah. What do you say, Mike? Yeah. Even though Judas has sold him out and comes and betrays him with a kiss, Jesus still calls him my friend. He's not being sarcastic there. He's being gracious, yeah, my, my friend. Every battle is won or lost before it is fought. I've told you before that the word Gethsemane, it's not a fancy word. It's a beautiful word in a way, but it literally just means olive press. It's just a word that means olive press. So Gethsemane itself is a place where things are pressed, where things are crushed. And I want you to notice, and I called your attention when we read it, notice what Jesus says in verse 38. My soul is crushed. My my soul is crushed with grief to the the point of death. I'm going to say something, and and I I want your response to it, but but I want you to think with me. Um, I would say that That we can learn something here with Jesus But it's not just Jesus Anytime God is going to use a man Anytime God is going to use one of us He will first crush us Does that sound right? Before Jesus can use a man Before Jesus can use a woman He will first crush them Does that make sense? Do you agree with that? It sounds horrible. It sounds as if God is perhaps something other than loving. But I insist that it's true, that before God can use me, God must take me and crush me. Talk about that with me. Have you experienced his crushing? If this is true at all, why is it true? What happens when we are crushed? Say it again, Andrew. We gain perspective. that There's something in that crushing that makes us begin to see. Yeah. Keep going. What happens when we're crushed? Why would God crush me? Yeah, and that probably goes back to what Andrew says with, with perspective. When I am crushed, I am reduced. I, I don't have anything left but God. And when there's nothing that I have but God, that is when I will discover that I need nothing but God. We're crushed sometimes, and we're reduced where we have nothing but God. What else? Why would he crush me? Yep, yeah, Claude. Yeah, Claude's comparing it to the breaking of an animal, the breaking of a horse. Uh, it's important in that training to, to break the horse so that then the horse can be useful, so that the horse will o- obey your instructions. Yeah, interesting. Any other ideas? Why, why would God crush me? Yeah, Steve. Steve. Yeah, yeah. Use the example of of the military boot camp is a crushing. Uh, you you take everything away, reduce them so that you can build them back up uh, into the soldier, into the into the the fighting person that you need them to be. Yeah. Mark yeah, Margaret Ann. Yeah, Yeah, to to get our complete attention. Why does he need our complete attention? Doesn't he understand? This is the year 2012. We multitask. I can serve God and do other things. Would somebody send God the memo? Does he really need my full attention? Yeah, yeah. Before he will use me, he will crush me. Some of you have experienced his his crushing. Let me say this to you. Before God can use a person, he takes them and he crushes them. This is why some of you will never be used. Because you will not submit to the crushing. God will never use you because you you will not let him crush you. God won't use this church until he crushes it. You understand it's just it's a principle. And it's painful and we all would like to think we could skip this step, but you don't skip this step. Jesus didn't get to skip the crushing. You understand? He didn't get to go through this part without being If God is going to use you, young people, you understand, he's going to crush you. He's going to, to, to crush you. But even in his crushing, you will experience an overwhelming love and grace. You understand? An overwhelming love and grace. And everything good in life, everything good that God wants to bring you, is going to come out of that experience of being crushed. Everything comes from this experience of being crushed. Let's go on. Let's go on. Let's just zero in with me on this one detail, verse 52, verse 51, actually. One of them, one of the men with Jesus, pulled out his sword and struck the high priest's slave, slashing off his ear. Put away your sword, Jesus told him. Those who use the sword will die by the sword. Don't you realize that I could ask my father for thousands of angels to protect us and he would send them instantly If I did, how would the scriptures be fulfilled that describe what must happen now? Then Jesus said to the crowd, Am I some dangerous revolutionary that you come with swords and clubs to arrest me? Flip over to Mark chapter 14. Just do this with me. Mark 14. I want to give you an idea how the gospel stories work together. Mark chapter 14. Same story, same episode. Different writer. Mark 14, verse 51. Now get this. Back up, 40, 46. Others grabbed Jesus and arrested him, but one of the men with Jesus pulled out his sword and struck the high priest's slave, slashing off his ear. Am I some dangerous revolutionary that you come with swords and clubs to arrest me? Why didn't you arrest me in the temple? I was there among you teaching every day, but these things are happening to fulfill what the scriptures say about me. Okay, same same, same thing, same story, almost verbatim. Then get this. All his disciples deserted him and ran away. One young man following behind was clothed only in a long linen shirt. When the mob tried to grab him, he slipped out of his shirt and ran away naked. That's never been in any of our Easter pageants, by the way. (laughs) That's never, we've never done that part. Yeah. I, I just throw that in. What is that? What is that? A young man out there in his gown. He's in his gown. It's the middle of the night. Do you understand? He's in his gown, a young man. And then what happens? They try to grab him. They grab his shirt, and what's he do? He comes out of it, streaks off. Why do we have that detail only in the Gospel of Mark? Yeah, it's an eyewitness. This is the wonderful thing about the Gospels. They all include details that only an eyewitness could give you. The really fun thing in church history is that most people believe that this young man must have been Mark. Must have been Mark. He's the only one who tells us the part about being naked, but you can't blame him for not telling you right out that that was him. Uh, you, you can't blame him for that. Luke chapter 22, same story, same episode. Luke chapter 22 verse 49. Luke 22:49. When the other disciples saw what was about to happen, they exclaimed, "Lord, should we fight? We brought the swords." And one of them struck at the high priest's slave, slashing off his right ear. But Jesus said, no more of this. And he touched the man's ear and healed him. Then Jesus spoke to the leading priests, the captains of the temple guard, and the elders who had come for him. Am I some dangerous revolutionary, he said, that you come with swords and clubs to arrest me? Okay, what's different there? What's added there? He healed the ear. Yeah, We know it happened, but the other gospel writers didn't give you that detail. But the gospel of Luke, and Luke happens to be a a doctor, a physician, so he's interested in this sort of thing. So Luke gives you the detail that after one of the disciples, and and he doesn't tell us which one, but one of the disciples slashes off the, the, the servant's ear, and Jesus picks the ear up off the ground and puts it back on his head. He heals the man's ear. Yeah, now go with me one more time. Let's go to the gospel of John chapter 18. Same story, same episode. John chapter 18, verse 10. John chapter 18, verse 10. Now remember, John is the the last gospel we assume to be written. This is the later version of the story. Notice what John gives us. Then Simon Peter drew a sword, and slashed off the right ear of Malchus, the high priest's slave. But Jesus said, put your sword back into its sheath. Shall I not drink from the cup of suffering that the Father has given me? What do we get there? We get the name of the servant. We get the name of the slave. Why would John make a point of giving us his name? So people could go find Malchus. Yeah, interesting. I think you're exactly right. What else? What does that tell you? Why would he make a point of saying the name Malchus? Again, We don't know for sure. But most scholars reach the conclusion that Malchus must have been somebody known in the early church. Why else would you say his name? Malchus is probably known, which suggests what? He became a Christian. Malchus more than likely came to faith in Christ, how could he not? Every time he reached up and tugged on his ear, you understand, that at one point was on the ground. Yeah, Malchus more than likely came to faith, was a Christian, and was known in the early church, and John gives us his name. I, I, I love that. Everything keeps leading up to this question, and this is how we'll close. Verse 55, Jesus said to the crowd, I'm back in Matthew 26, I'm sorry, But this is the question that all of the gospels give us. Jesus asked the crowd this question. What's his question? Am I some dangerous revolutionary that you come with me with swords and clubs? What's the answer to that question? Is Jesus some dangerous revolutionary? Yes, he is. Yes, he is. Maybe not in the way that they might think, but Jesus is dangerous. He's dangerous, and he is a revolutionary. You preach the sermon. What do I mean? What are we saying? Yes, he's a dangerous revolutionary. Who's he dangerous to? He's a threat to them. Of course he is. And they recognize the threat. That's why they will do anything to destroy him. He's dangerous to them, to the religious folks. Who else? Who's Jesus dangerous to? Anyone in darkness? The the Romans? Yeah. Who else? Yeah, Satan. All of the powers, the powers and principalities of the air, as the New Testament says. Jesus is dangerous. Is he a revolutionary? Absolutely. What is a revolution? Yeah, Somebody who comes in and turns something upside down, turns the order upside down, t- takes a ruler and pushes the ruler off the throne. A revolutionary is someone who comes in and brings dramatic change. Yeah. You better believe he's a dangerous revolutionary. You, you better believe it real quickly. Let's do a couple of verses together. Romans 5 verse 10. Let's just hit this one. Romans 5.10, I just want to remind you of this. For since our friendship with God was restored by the death of his son, while we were still his, say the word, enemies, we were his enemies, we'll certainly be saved through the life of his son. Did you understand? He's a dangerous revolutionary. He's dangerous to those who are his enemies And all of us were his enemies. If you're one of those who prefers darkness rather than than light, if you're one of those who loves your sin, do you understand? If you're one of those who will not come to Christ, understand, then you are his enemy, and he is a danger to you. In the present moment, he's showing great restraint. You're not feeling his wrath, but I'm telling you, there will come a day when that patience, when that tolerance, when that kindness will be over. His restraint will be released, and you and the world will face judgment. Do you understand? Of course he's dangerous. Of course he's dangerous. And is he a revolutionary? Of course he's a revolutionary. Of course he wants to turn your life upside down. You know that. He wants to crush you so that he can build you back and use you, and you resist that. Do you understand? Of course he's dangerous. Of course he's a revolutionary. Do you understand? He cannot. He cannot use you. He cannot have a place in your life until there is a revolution in your life, until there's an uprising, until he pushes you yourself off the throne of your life and he himself is enthroned. There's got to be a revolution in your heart. You listening? And in our church, there has to be a revolution in our church. It can't be about what we want. It can't be about us just simply growing and growing and never experiencing his crushing. We need the same kind of, of dangerous revolution. We need Christ to come in and not come beside us and, and bless us and answer our prayers. We need him to come in and take over a, a, a revolution, a, a dangerous kind of revolution. Jesus asked him, am I some kind of dangerous revolutionary, that you come after me with swords and clubs? Don't you understand that I could ask my father to send 10,000 angels to fight for me? They take him into custody, and all of the disciples abandon him. I would say one of the greatest displays of God's power is his restraint. No one takes his life away from him. He lays it down. He lays it down for us. Any final thoughts? Anything? We got a final song. Then Andrew, come lead us. Altars open if you wish to pray. If there's something that you feel like the Lord is telling you, something you want to share with the congregation, this is the time for that. It's been a great weekend, a good weekend for the youth. Let's just bring it to close with worship, with thanksgiving, and by giving God everything he wants from us. Stand together. Uh, let's sing.